Welcome to another episode of Pipeline Foods Into the Weeds podcast, where we dig into the details of organic row crop production. I'm Anders Gerda, director of the Farm Profit Program at Pipeline. In this series, we visit with transitioning and organic farmers, learn about new tools and techniques, and explore new corners of the organic industry. We cover topics that help you grow and create a space where we can learn from one another. A little bit about Pipeline Foods before getting into the episode. We're increasing the availability and reliability of organic, non-GMO, and regeneratively grown food and feed. We buy grains, oil seeds, and pulses, and we provide the tools and resources you need to successfully transition to organic or grow your existing operation through our farm profit program. Everything that we do starts with you, the farmer, and so our job is to make yours easier. Check out PipelineFoods.com for more information. Once there, filling out a quick form will give you access to our weekly bids and the best collection of resources and tools relating to organic grain production on the internet. We're glad that you're here. And now, the show. Hey, Anders. Hey, Aaron. How are you doing? Dr. Aaron Silva is an assistant professor with the University of Wisconsin-Madison Department of Plant Pathology, but many listeners will know her as the current head of O-Grain, the Organic Grain Resources and Information Network, which she and I actually started at UW together many years ago. And though her organic program is pretty broad, working in vegetables and pastures as well, today we're going to be getting into the weeds of organic no-till production. Erin is one of the foremost national researchers and educators when it comes to reducing tillage and organic row crops, having conducted no-till soybean trials for over a decade. She's traveled the world, teaching and learning, and we're lucky to have her today on Pipeline Foods Into the Weeds podcast. So let's get into it. Let's start really high level uh, and address one of the most common criticisms in organic row crops, which would be tillage, right? Some people call it the Achilles heel of our production systems, and I would tend to agree, depending on the situation and scenario. So some farmers, I think, see it as an invaluable tool and one that we shouldn't have to apologize for using, and others might call it a necessary evil. And then I know that myself, I have talked to countless non-organic farmers that see tillage as one of the biggest reasons that they don't even consider getting into organic, right? That's a no-go that, that I don't want to get into my soil, don't want to break, you know, my no-till soil that I've had for 20 years. So big question for you to start out with is what's your take on the role that tillage plays in organic systems? Now, that's a great question, and certainly our research program here at the University of Wisconsin-Madison has been working um, quite extensively on investigating um, methods for no-till organic and reducing tillage inorganic and the impacts of, of tillage on soil health and, and other parameters within the organic grain production system. And when I start thinking about tillage inorganic and the role of tillage inorganic or the negative consequences in tillage of organic, one of the first things I do is, is turn to some of the long-term cropping systems trials mm-hmm. that are been, um, that have been conducted across the U.S. And, and across the globe. 
And many of these trials are set up in a way that they compare different cropping systems, whether they be conservation tillage and conventional systems, more of an intensively managed conventional system with tillage, um, systems that have more of a, a monoculture approach to production, systems that include diversity, including grazing, and systems that include organic management practices. And these long-term management trials that compare these different practices over an extended number of years, um, you know, from, from this data, we can see trends start to emerge. And one of the um, things that we see within these organic versus conventional management trials is that even with soil disturbance, whether it be through tillage or, or cultivation that is often employed in organic for weed management, organic still is able to realize many soil health benefits. Mm. So again, even with the soil disturbance, we see accumulations of soil organic matter. We see um, higher levels of soil carbon. We see good soil biological activity. And we see that within a well-managed organic grain system, we, we see good yields. Um, and in many cases, yields that are quite competitive with conventional yields. So when I look at that data, um, yeah, I really start to think more deeply about looking at organic as a system and the mm -hmm. role of tillage and soil disturbance within that system and what we're doing in that system to mitigate the negative impacts of tillage and soil disturbance. Well said. So I know that the Organic Center actually just had a webinar that I only caught the tail end of, but that webinar was covering what practices in organic systems contribute to soil health, different parameters. So soil organic matter, CEC, whatever you look at. And I think you just covered that really well, but I'll also put a link in the show notes to that webinar. And there's also a little publication they came out with as well. So what I hear you saying is that, um, it, that it's, there are organic practices that in some ways counteract any of the potential negatives that come from tillage. And you have to look at it as a system and you have to look at it over a longer period of time to be able to actually observe that kind of uh, evening out of these effects. Yes. And as, as many, um, many aspects of organic and organic being a biological system and ecological system, it's, it's harder to make broad generalizations mm. that um, a, a much of what we do in organic systems and, and the judgments we make in organic systems um, and the decisions we make in organic systems are going to be very site specific. And certainly with tillage and cultivation and soil disturbance, uh, we, we really need to look at our own farms and even fields within our own farms to look at where we should prioritize minimization of tillage and cultivation and, and where we may need to look at using other practices or other crop rotations. So when we look at land where there's, there's minimal slope, it's flatter land, um, there's less of a risk of surface erosion, I think um, it, to me, inorganic, that's where I start to worry more about tillage, when we're on hillier land, um, right. when there's risk of soil washing down slopes, and especially as we see more extreme weather events, um, and it's just really essential that we, we, we take proactive measures to keep that soil in place. So many organic farms here in Wisconsin are indeed on hillier lands. And I think it's, it's really important when we're looking at tillage and cultivation to assess, assess those fields. And if there are lands that are on greater slopes, um, that, that again, we rethink what we're doing within our crop rotation, mm. 
we rethink if there may be other uses for those lands that are more appropriate um, and, and really there think very critically about tillage. But if, if we're on flatter land, um, I think in, in terms of other aspects that farmers worry about, and justifiably so, with going in and disturbing the soil, and whether it be impacting soil structure, aggregation, or impacting soil biological activity and our, our, our buscular mycorrhizal fungi communities, um, that again, there's other practices in organic that can help counteract that soil disturbance with the crop diversity that we use, with the cover cropping practices, additions of manure and compost, and, and returning those cover crops back into the soil as green manures that can help, again, counteract the um, the disturbance of soil structure that we do with tillage and, and help build the soil and the soil structure and aggregation of soil life um, or the, the aggregation and the uh, support of soil life that um, enhances soil health and increases the productivity of our soils. Well said. One of the biggest takeaways that I got from the Organic Center webinar and their, their meta-analysis, which means, right, it's looking at all of these studies across time, across geographies, and pretty much summarizing and averaging them out, uh, was just how big of a part manure plays, animal manures, mm-hmm. and those, those organic inputs, that that is, that is a large contributor to the general health of organic systems. So I think there's a, a whole nother rabbit hole to go down as far as best practices and how those organic practices lead to soil health. Um, but so focusing this conversation on tillage, if, if I'm hearing you right, right, if we can reduce tillage we should, even though we're acknowledging that there are all these other things that, that are a part of an organic system that lead to soil health. I think it's, it, would you agree with the statement rather is the way I should ask this, that if we can reduce tillage, we should. Oh, absolutely. Okay. Cool. No <laughs> doubt. No doubt. I mean, if, if there's ways, whether it be the implements that we use, strategizing our, comp, um, our crop rotation, mm-hmm. using other practices like cover crops, using crop diversity that are going to help with ecological weed management, no doubt we should. Um, we, we all as an organic community should, should look at ways that we can reduce our impact on the soil, particularly with soil disturbance. But I, I also um, don't want to prioritize soil or the minimization of soil disturbance at the expense of all the other mm-hmm. soil building mm-hmm. practices that we can include within an organic rotation. And again, using good judgment in a site specific way as to, to what are those best management practices on specific fields. Right. That's a good caveat. So all that being said, lucky for listeners, we're talking to one of the leading researchers in organic no-till in the country. So, uh, Thanks for being here and being able to talk about that. <laughs> so uh, it's one of my favorite topics to talk about. You so got it. Pleasure to be here. So can you tell us a little bit more about your research program? You mentioned it a little bit, but what are you looking at? What questions do you have and how are you answering them? Yeah. Um, so we started doing organic no-till research, gosh, back in, I believe it was around 2006, 2007, when mm-hmm. I first came to Wisconsin. And, and even prior to that, I actually started to do this research down in the desert at New Mexico State University in vegetable mm. systems. Um, so coming up here and beginning working in grain systems and hearing about the, the great work that the Rodeo Institute had done um, scaling up these, these cover crop-based no-till systems to larger scale organic grain production, um, really was was very excited to include that as a priority area in my research program. 
um, knowing the impacts on not only enhancing soil health and organic grain systems, but also being a key tool with weed management. And certainly, mm-hmm. as we look at transitioning to organic or even organic farmers that, that have been um, you know, farming using organic methods for 10 plus years, weed management is is one of the more challenging aspects of, of moving from a conventional system into an organic Absolutely. system. So having another tool available for weed management that also benefits our soil um, was was of interest not only to me, but but to the organic farmers in Wisconsin that I was working with. Um, so, so partnering with Rodale, and I was very lucky to be able to meet Jeff Moyer early on and see firsthand what they were doing um, and having his mentorship to adapt those systems to the Wisconsin environment, um, you started to work on the, the no-till system using uh, fall sown cover crops which tended to be winter cereal grains in mm-hmm. soybean or uh, a fall sown legume with corn um, and look at how do we optimize the performance of those systems in the upper Midwest while reducing risk and maintaining productivity for organic farmers. Right. Perfect. Yeah, that's uh, that's good. And so in full disclosure, I also uh, worked in your lab for, for a few years and helped to manage your no-till trials for what, a year and a half or so. So. You did, and it was. Uh, we definitely learned a lot at that time. And <laughs> you were, I think, the the first person that really started the the early planting technique mm-hmm. um, of getting a jump on soybean planting by planting earlier into that standing cereal rye. Yeah, yeah absolutely. So it's a good full circle uh, to be talking about this years later after it has really matured, and you have uh, really furthered the research and turned a lot of those knobs. And we'll be talking about those in just a little bit. So just to make sure that we're clear on terms for people listening, um, are we talking true no-till, continuous no-till, like a conventional system, or are we talking about something else here in an organic setting? No, we use organic no-till as a bit of a slang term, I guess, or (laughs) jargon, so to speak. But really, as we're looking at describing more specifically what this system actually is, um, we tend to use the term cover crop-based rotational no-tillage. Not quite as sexy as no-till. Yeah, <laughs> more <laughs> a multiple into saying organic no-till. Right. Um, so within these systems, right now, um, to the point that we're at and with the tools that we have, we're able to minimize tillage and cultivation and soil disturbance within certain phases of the crop rotation. And depending on where you are in the U.S. and what your growing system, or your growing season is, and what your crop rotation is, um, you know, there's, there's various points in the crop rotation that you can use these techniques, but we, we still have to do strategic soil disturbance, including tillage um, prior to, to certain crops. Okay, got it. So cover crop-based reduced tillage production. <laughs> <laughs> cover crop-based rotational no-till. Rotational no-till. Okay, rotational yeah. no-till. That makes sense, which is that yeah. you're, you're reducing tillage in some phases. And yeah. so let's dig into one of those phases, the, the system that I'm sure most people have heard of and the system that you have videos out and guides about and talk about a lot is soybean production. So rye-based no-till soybean production. Um, can you run us through that system? Let's get into some of the nuts and bolts here. So maybe run us through that system as you run through the season, covering some of the most important elements of that system, why it works and how to get them right. 
Yeah, and I'd be happy to do that. And with the rye soybean system, at least here in the upper Midwest in Wisconsin, uh, having researched that system for over a decade now, I do feel confident that that is a system that will work. So in the rye soybean system, there's a few key elements that need to be in place to make this system successful. So in this system, we're coming in in the fall and in Wisconsin, um, When I say the fall, I mean sometime in September Mm -hmm. um, and planting a winter annual cereal grain. And we've tried several different winter annual cereal grains. We've tried winter cereal rye. We've tried winter wheat. We've tried winter trichicilli. And any of these cereal grains would work. Winter annual rye tends to work the best um, as compared to the other cereal grains. It has better winter hardiness. It has more allelopathy to help suppress weeds um, and, and keep weeds from emerging. Um, So we plant the winter cereal rye in the fall, sometime in September, and that is an absolute essential step. You you must get the cereal grains planted in September. If you plant them too late, um, you will not get the degree of tillering you need to get the biomass that is necessary to suppress weeds throughout the cash crop growing season. and, and that is one of the hardest steps that I found uh, for farmers that are implementing this technique um, to be able to successfully achieve. Mm-hmm. In our growing conditions, uh, typically if we're growing corn for grain, um, that is often not harvested until October or even this, this season. There are farmers out there in December still harvesting corn for grain, which, which typically does not happen and hopefully right. won't happen again. Or even this um, spring in some cases. Yeah. yeah corn I, still out there this year. Yes. Um, so in a typical rotation that we think of, of corn, soybean, cereal, grain, alfalfa, um, if we have it in our two too uh, strongly in our mindset that we're going to do soybeans after corn and plant cereal rye after corn, um, it often is too late to be successful in this system. So it it does take some rethinking of your rotation and what crop sequence you need to ensure getting that winter cereal rye in um, sometime during September. So after you plant your winter rye in, in September, typically our recommendations have been bushels per acre. So we've been recommending farmers plant cereal rye at a rate of three bushel an acre, which is much higher than a typical rye cover crop um, that you're growing to protect the soil or or add some um, carbon back into the soil. Um, But again, that's another essential step that you plant that seeding rate that you plant the cereal rye at that higher seeding rate because um, you know, with all these different agronomic management factors, uh, one of the key elements that we're trying to achieve is adequate rye biomass to, to suppress weeds the following year. So you look at these investments in changing your crop sequence or planting rye at a heavier seeding rate, but you can think of that as your weed management program. And if you're a conventional farmer, think of that as your, your herbicide program. Your crop protection. Yeah. It is your crop protection. Yeah. So you you need to put the thought and you need to put the effort and you, you need to put the, the timeliness into it to be able to maximize that crop protection that is going to last all through that soybean cash crop phase. So if you're talking um, pounds, what that's 56 bushel weight, so 168 pounds per acre, give or take? 
Yep. Yeah. And increasingly, we've been trying to dial in those recommendations even more and go for for a a seed per acre rate, um, because depending on the variety that you're using, um, the the seed size can vary. So um, I think we're trying to get to a rate of about three million seeds per acre, um, although um, we'd have to double check that. Uh, You have to hire an intern to count all those seeds out. It is, yeah, yeah. We, we, we're two million one, two million two. <laughs> but it is, it is a it is a justified concern that, and again, if you're really looking at optimizing the system, um, and depending on the rye variety you're using, um, that 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 could make a difference in terms of the the final biomass. Got it. And there are a couple different rye varieties out there. Um, we've tried the newer varieties of of hybrid rye. Um, tried a rustic which is a bit of an earlier maturing rye and we've we've tried um a rye other um named cultivars of rye and and there are some differences um, between the rye varieties depending on your system and your goals um but really we've found success with with multiple different types of rye um so after you plant that rye in the fall um, again really prioritizing getting that rye in early um, and also making sure that you get that that rye at that heavier in at that heavier seeding rate. Um, you that rye will start to grow in the fall, will go dormant through the winter, and will start to regrow in the spring. Um, and you'll really start to put on a lot of biomass through later April, early May. Mm-hmm. Um, and and although um, you know it's always tempting to get out to into the fields as early as you can. Um, in this system, you really have to be patient. And as we're relying on mechanical termination of the the cereal rye um, and waiting for that rye to get into a reproductive phase um, so that once it is rolled, it stays on the ground um, and dies and and remains as a a killed mulch, we have to wait to do that stage until the rye reaches anthesis. So at the stage of anthesis, that sounds like a fancy (laughs) word. That's a good question. Um, So anthesis is another word for flowering. Mm. So we're waiting until that rye flowers. And you can visually see this um, as you look at the rye heads. Um, in thesis starts at the middle of the head. You can see um, the anthers um, emerge uh, from the rye heads. Um, they, they, they hang down off the rye heads. And, and what you're specifically looking for is for anthesis to progress throughout that, that spike um, and start to see the pollen actually start to shed. So if you we run your hand over that rye, you'll, you'll see yellow pollen on your hand. And we've experienced and we, we've heard stories from farmers as they go and, and roll that rye of just clouds of pollen coming um, mm-hmm. as that rye is disturbed across the field. So so you can really easily visually identify, um, again, um, you know, when those anthers emerge from the rye heads and when that pollen starts to shed. So and if at that point, if you're not sure, just get your friend that has the worst hay fever and just throw <laughs> them into your field and, and make sure that they're sneezing a lot. Oh my gosh! Yes, that that's a, <laughs> that is one indicator. It's a sci- scientific. <laughs> um, but when you reach that stage, uh, the the rye will, um, when it's rolled down through roller crimping, which acts by not only rolling the the rye onto the ground, but the crimper action, which are those blades that you see on the implements, they mm-hmm. actually bend the stem. And to get the best termination, it's a combination of that rolling and that breaking of the stem, um, or the, the bending of the stem, I should say. 
Mm-hmm. And so, uh, and so I know at- that there's the there's the Rodale Institute. They have their their um, open source plans for their Chevron bladed, easy rolling roller crimper. And I also have seen a lot of discussions on message boards about, you know, can you use a flat roller? Can you use a cultipacker? So what advice do you have as long as we're on this roller crimping termination phase? What's what works well and what's passable and what should yeah. you use? Yeah, no, that's a, that's a really good question. Um, and there are more models of roller crimpers out there in the market. And we, we've trialed um, several of them. And honestly, um, many of the commercial roller crimpers, and, and certainly we haven't tried all of them, um, but, but many of them are quite effective. Mm-hmm. Um, and the key elements to the ones that are effective are that they indeed have these, these blades that allow for crimping, and they also have a significant amount of weight. So, for instance, with the Rodale model, um, we have weight that's added to the, the roller crimper implement by filling that hollow cylinder on which the blades are mounted with water. Mm-hmm. Um, it, Dawn equipment has roller crimpers, um, and they're smaller roller crimpers that are mounted on the, the uh, planter, but um, they they provide um, more um, effective roller crimp. Not they provide effective, not more. They they provide effective roller crimping um, by hydraulic down pressure. Mm-hmm. So that's where these um, specifically designed roller crimpers have advantages over something like a cultipacker because um, they specifically have those blades and they have the weight or down pressure. And I, I've heard farmers have success with a variety of implements, including just rolling a tractor over the field with the planter at the right time. Mm. And they can work, um, but with a lot of elements of this system. And when I give recommendations to farmers, um, I'm really focusing on reducing risk because again, this is your weed management and and really getting this right sets you up for success for the entire growing season. And, you know, soybeans and organic, the weed management um, typically is a bit more challenging as compared to corn and some other crops. Um, so there, there aren't necessarily a lot of great cleanup options um, if the, the rolled rye does not perform as we anticipate um, and we don't get the weed suppression we want. So um, the, the last thing I want to do is, is see a, a farmer fail um, and have um, not only the, the lower yields on the crop, but additions to the weed seed bank that are going to be um, presenting challenges for years to come. So I really think that it's, it's if you are going to do this, it's really important to think through um, optimization of all these different steps, including equipment, so that you are set up for success and, and your risk is reduced. Right. Okay, great. So so to catch us up, we have fall planted, September, October, three bushel to the acre, rye or other winter cereal grain. Um, it is spring. We have green up. We have anthesis. We have pollen shedding. And now I'm, I'm loading up my soybean planter. So what does that look like? Yeah, yeah. So there's a couple of different ways to approach this, and, and there's multiple ways to be successful here. So this is where there is some flexibility, um, and and really some of these judgments are um, dependent on what equipment you have available and what your number of acres are, and what your equipment and labor resources are to cover those those um, acres that that you do need to manage. So um, you know the way that that Rodale had designed their equipment 
they have their roller crimper in the front and then their plants are mounted on the back. And it was designed to be a one pass operation. And, you know, certainly there are advantages to that. You only have to go over the field once. So that reduces your time, that reduces your labor, that reduces the wear and tear on equipment and the fuel and the compaction on the field. Um, you know, that can be challenging, though, from a, a, a planting um, perspective, because you have that rolled rye mat down on the ground. Um, you planting three bushel an acre at that earlier planting date, you have a lot of biomass and in excess of 10,000 pounds per acre. And it's a thick mat. And that thick mat is necessary to prevent sunlight from reaching the soil surface. So you need to um, have that mat thick enough that essentially when it's rolled down, you do not see soil, you do not see bare spots, and it's thick enough um, that it remains present um, throughout um, at least until soybean canopy closure, which um, mm -hmm. when we're planting on 30-inch rows, it needs to be in place typically through the end of July. Um, and planting through that thick mulch is a challenge. Um, so with the, the planter on the back trying to penetrate through that thick mulch, um, you know, many growers have found that to be problematic. Um, we try to overcome that by optimizing our planter, um, by planting soybeans at a heavier seeding rate. But still, it can be challenging, particularly when you're planting into more drier conditions, both with respect to soil or precipitation right after planting. So many growers are instead um, going to a model where they're actually doing it in a two-pass operation. Mm -hmm. They're planting first into the standing rye at anthesis. Um, they're able to get better um, penetration into the rye, better seed-to-soil contact of the soybeans. Right. And then they'll go right after and crimp um, the rye right after soybean planting within a day or so. So it takes two passes, but they, they find it, it's much easier to get the seed in the ground. And a lot of um, what we've been working on more recently with our research program is to optimize planting and, and getting um, good stand establishment. Um, and part of that is, is getting good seed to soil contact. So what so I, I mentioned that you're one of the nation's leading researchers in organic no-till. I didn't also mention, and people may not know, that you are also a YouTube star. Which <laughs> um, is which is to say, I actually looked it up just now as you're talking. Uh, so there are some really great videos online. One of them talking about advances using roller crimper for organic no-till, specific looking at uh, at planting planter modifications, uh, down pressure springs, increased weight coulters, things like that. And it now has six hundred and thirty-eight thousand views. So are yeah, you I get I get uh, calls and emails from farmers all over the world. <laughs> so it's really exciting to see this organic no-till community emerge on, on more of a global scale. Yeah, absolutely. So how much money do you get from those YouTube videos? <laughs> I joke with my kids if they consider me a YouTube star now. They say I need to get to a million to be able to reach that. Status. Oh, is that it? Okay. You got so so ev hopefully everyone on this podcast will listen and we'll not <laughs> we'll, we'll get you up at least a few hundred. <laughs> um, okay, cool. So so thanks for running through uh, planting. So you, you've run us through some of that timing. Um, what's, what's next? Is there anything next? Or is that when you just get to sit in your hammock and drink a Mai Tai? <laughs> And so, so that, um, what I just described is, is kind of been the more traditional way of doing the, the rye soybean system. And if we're, if we're doing um, the system using that sequence of um, events or that sequence of, um, of practices th um, throughout the planting of the rye to the planting of the soybeans, waiting till in thesis, um, we need to wait 
in Wisconsin uh, until the end of May or early June. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's been something that has concerned farmers. And typically in organic, we're planting later anyway. Um, and and uh, it's not as uh, big of a, a difference um, when we're looking at organic grain systems. But still, you know, the later we plant, um, there, there is some yield potential we're losing. So another technique that we've been uh, doing more research on is is how do we um, bump up that planting date of soybean? And uh, as you mentioned, the videos, there's a, there's a video describing this technique as well. And and that technique is to plant the soybeans earlier into the the rye. So planting green into rye at the boot stage and then waiting until anthesis to terminate the rye. So we're decoupling the planting of the soybean and the termination of the rye. And we found that that has advantages in certain uh, circumstances or certain situations. Um, and I know one of the jokes is that researchers and extension specialists, when asked a question, oftentimes the answer is, it depends. It depends. <laughs> and this certainly, again, is, is one of those cases. And again, I feel in organic systems, which are biological, ecological systems, we, we seem to even get more of those, it depends as answers. So, so when does, or how does this depend? Um, so what we found with this early planting technique, uh, so again, we're, we're looking at planting rye at soybeans into rye at the boot stage. So that gives us about a two to three week jump in planting. Um, and when we found that that works better, we found that it's, it's in conditions where we have a warmer uh, we have a warmer spring or a warmer end of May, which in, in, in hindsight makes a lot of sense because if, if we're planting soybeans in middle of May when we reach the boot stage and we're getting those seeds into the ground um, and you can imagine without sunlight being able to hit the soil surface and, and underneath that thick rye canopy, we have pretty cold, wet conditions under there and organic, we don't have seed treatments necessarily. Um, and if, if what we're trying to do is, is get a jump on soybean emergence and growth, if we're planting into conditions where the soybean seed is just sitting there and could potentially rot or be predated by slugs or um, mammals or insects, uh, it's, it's not really going to give us any benefit by planting at that earlier planting date. So what we've seen over the years is that in, in warmer springs, um, if you are around the boot stage and you see that there is a good outlook for the next 10 days that you have some some warm sunny weather um you have good soil moisture and you can anticipate that that soybean is going to get out of the ground quickly then you you can see an advantage by planting earlier if you are at the boot stage and you see that there's going to be a stretch of cloudy cooler, wetter soil conditions, you just may not see an advantage because again, um, if that if that seed is just sitting there and not emerging, it's not going to do you any good um, to to have, uh, you're not going to see an advantage of that, that earlier soybean establishment. And if anything, um, you may see a yield loss because of loss of stands. So it's one of those situations where um, you, you need to make a judgment call. And that's a pretty easy judgment call though to make because it's, it's uh, Again, just you're looking at the weather and it's just being patient enough to sit back and wait another two to three weeks before planting. So I think with that system, one of the hardest things to wrap your head around that I hear people having questions about is, wait, so you're just rolling right over already emerged soybeans. What kind of damage does that do to the beans and and does that lead to any yield drag? 
we have seen some stand losses um, with the system, but it's it's been um, surprisingly moderate. Um, and again, depending on advantages of early soybean emergence and early growth, um, any stand loss from the roller crimper um, is is uh, is compensated by that that earlier planting date. But again, this this can be season or, or um, dependent on what the conditions are of a given year. But it's been surprising how well the soybeans withstand the roller crimper. And there are practices, um, and this was one of the reasons why I was brave enough to do the roller crimper. Farmers joke with me that you know, I was braver than they would have been to go over <laughs> a field and, and roll over a, a field of emerged soybeans. But um, there, there are um, practices that include land rollers over soybeans. So there was some research on which to draw upon to look at what might be the most optimal stage to, to roll the soybeans with minimal damage. And we found that if you do this um, around the, the, the V1 to V3 stage, you do see minimal damage. You don't want to go in too early when the beans are at the crook stage, nor do you want to go too late. Um, but there is a stage where the beans can take that, that uh, impact of the roller crimper and, and rebound quite well. Okay, great. We all know that soybeans want to live, right? They're they're a pretty robust plant. Uh, the story that I tell oftentimes, and you might not like me telling this story. You can you can tell me not to air it <laughs> if, if if we don't <laughs> want to air it. But I think about the first year that I was managing your no-till trials. Uh, that was before we did any planter modifications, and that was when we were using uh, you know front-mounted roller crimper, rear-mounted planter. And we planted and we had already, you know, done six or seven trials and looked back really six or seven strips rather and looked back and realized that as we went, we were not getting good seed to soil contact that depending on the row, we were effectively broadcasting soybean seeds right on top of the soil. Um, and this was this was probably my third week of work with you. And so I, I felt I was shocked and kind of embarrassed and like, oh my God, like we this is this does not look good. We need to be getting a lot more contact. I know I know enough to know that. And so I felt like I was really uh kind of screwing the pooch early <laughs> early on in my career. Um and what we found, we got lucky, you know, there was a couple days of rain. There were some overcast days and the seeds that had not made it into the furrow ended up, you know, rooting down and shot cotyledons up and they established just fine. And by the end of that year, we had, what was the average that year? I think it was 56, 57 bushel to the acre beans in those, in those strips. Um, and so that, that for me was eye opening in a lot of ways. One, you know, be a better researcher, get better seed to soil contact. And again, this was only in some of, some of the rows, you know, not all, um, but that really helped me to see that this can be a somewhat forgiving system and soybeans are a somewhat forgiving plant. And that's one of the reasons why this, this rye soybean system has been so much easier to figure out versus other crops in the crop rotation because soybeans are so resilient um, and are so forgiving in terms of yielding across um, a wider range of stand counts. And I don't know if this was the same year that you're describing, Anders, but there was one year where our stand counts were as low as 50,000 seeds per acre. Mm. And we still had decent yields. 
not fabulous yields, but we still yielded well enough that I think most organic farmers in, in Wisconsin would have been happy, particularly considering the excellent weed control that we were able right. to achieve in the rolled rye system. Um, there's one study that I remember reading, which I'm not going to be able to cite nor probably find, was that as long as you know soybeans are in um, contact, about 30% of the soybean seed is in contact with the soil um, and able to imbibe moisture, that that soil that seed will germinate. So you can imagine that under the right conditions and with the water and the moisture conserved under that mulch, even if you're not getting the seed in the ground, um, you can see that soybean start to emerge. But again, a lot of this um, in terms of how, how I'm approaching development recommendations is um, reducing risk as well as reducing input costs. And, and where we um, can look at benefits from optimization of the planter and indeed getting that seed into the ground is that we can dial back these seeding rates of right. soybeans, saving saving input costs, as well as just being more reliable um, and reducing risk of failure and lower yields. And, um, you know, in, in the upper Midwest, in the last few seasons, we have seen um, an excess of soil moisture. So the fact that we do have some seed laying on the ground isn't an issue, but I have... Um, incredible colleagues that I work with at Cornell University, including Dr. Matt Ryan. And I know that that then the area in the Northeast where Cornell University is, they've had a lot more struggles in the past few years with drier conditions at planting. And and he's he's cited that as a real risk of the system. And another one of those points of decisions in adaptive management that you may need to make a call for alternative management in the system if you are um, facing a uh, a condition at planting where you have um, excessively dry conditions. Right. That was actually was my next question. So it seems like it's, um, I guess the question relates to drought versus flooding, right? And so as you were just saying, mm-hmm. if there is drought that this can, as a cover crop, a very water hungry cover crop can mm-hmm. dry yes. you out faster and further. And that would be your mm-hmm. risk most definitely. But yep. I've also heard you say and heard others say as well is that in wet conditions where your soil is not yet fit, it's wetter, you want to get in there, but you can't yet, still slick, mm-hmm. um, that the rye acts like a really nice straw. It's a sponge. And so it can actually, one, dry out your fields faster than they would otherwise, but it also, because of all that biomass, means that compaction, when you're riding on top of 10,000 pounds per acre of, of rye, compaction is not going to be, still a worry, most definitely, but you can you can get away with a little bit more uh, tire traffic because of that as well. Is that right? I've, I'm not exactly sure about the con- uh, compaction calculations. I don't want to get myself in trouble by overstepping there, but yep. but certainly those overall observations, I, I definitely concur with and, and have had farmers um, relay to me similar observations that in that the wet springs that we've had over the past several seasons, that having this system has been advantageous in their ability to get out in the fields um, where it would have been more challenging because that rye does allow for um, to to mitigate those wet soil conditions um, as well as allow for better water infiltration through the soil profile. So so certainly in wet conditions, this this system can offer advantages. So so we've talked about ways to optimize this system at every point of the way from planting rye to planting beans. Um, after you get something in the ground, whether you're planting green, whether you're planting at rolling, then uh, you just wait. But uh, I'm curious if you could talk about if the system fails, 
what do we do? If you don't get the, the, if you don't kill the rye enough, if you have weed escapes, how are the, how are the ways that this system can go wrong and what can we do if that happens? Yeah. So I guess there's a couple of ways the system can go wrong. Um, the, the first is certainly weed escapes and, and the conditions where I've seen that typically is where there's not enough biomass. And we're trying to develop some tools with the University of Illinois um, to help predict rye biomass earlier in the spring where farmers can still make a call um, to easily incorporate that rye as a green manure, which I would say um, you know, from a, a mindset perspective can be frustrating because you've planned to have your weed management program in the rolled rye, but from an overall soil health perspective, incorporating that rye as a green manure is still a win. So I, I wouldn't take that as a complete loss, but instead um, using that as, as smart adaptive management. And there are some visual cues that can help determine if biomass would be sufficient, but typically the the breakthrough weed issues have been due to insufficient biomass. Mm -hmm. Um, And beyond the agronomic conditions that can put that at higher risk, like planting the rye later in the the fall or um, going at a lower seeding rate. I mean, there there can also be issues with fertility or winter kill that can um, lead to those, that condition as well. So um, it it really, a lot with the breakthrough weeds comes down to um, the rye biomass. Um, And in those conditions, um, you know, if you did make a a call and went through with roller crimping um, and weeds did break through, there's a couple solutions I've I've heard farmers um, implement uh, to to try to mitigate those those breakthrough weeds. Um, One is using high residue cultivation, um, which certainly in an excessively weedy field can help um, knock down weeds um, and uh, limit the amount of weeds that are then returning to the weed seed bank. Um, And the other option that I've heard more and more farmers use is the weed zapper. Mm. Um, So whether it be with, you know, giant ragweed or pigweed or or some of the other um, summer annuals, um, that can be a effective cleanup tool as well. Certainly not one to rely on or to um, use as a, as a crutch for trying to, um, get around um, a later or having to plant so, uh, the rye as early, um, but certainly can be used as a rescue tool in certain situations. Not as good with um, giant foxtail or, or some of the other grassier weeds that we see in the system, but for certain weeds can be quite effective. Um, the other point of risk in the system, which is certainly one that farmers need to be aware of, is um, having rye regrowth. Um, And with that earlier planting technique, planting at the boot stage, this is a higher risk, which depending on the crop rotation um, may or may not be significant enough to um, eliminate that management option um, as a a viable choice. Um, If there is rye regrowth, that can, I have heard of loads of soybeans being rejected. Um, if there is excessive rye within the soybeans and there is an inability of the farmer to, to clean out that rye. Um, and I've had heard it become an issue in subsequent phases of the crop rotation. For instance, if um, that 
rye soybean phase was immediately followed by another cereal grain. That volunteer rye can become a contaminant and um, affect, again, the, the, the quality of that grain the subsequent year. So depending on your markets, depending on your ability to clean seed, depending on if you're in a food grade grain market, um, not to say you can't do this, but you just need to, again, really thoughtfully and proactively think about what is your crop sequence um, and, and how are you going to manage to mitigate that risk. It's a really good caution. Um, and so, so I think that that covers this system really comprehensively. I appreciate you running through that. And I think one of the most convincing things or motivating things is just to see pictures and to see, to see video of this system working. And so I'll be sure to put in the show notes, um, some of the reports that you've come out with Aaron and, and the YouTube videos. And so seeing really is believing and it, it is incredible. I know the first year that I was doing these trials to, to be out there in June, then July, then August and September, and just to see fields that are as clean or cleaner than, you know, conventionally tilled and uh, conventionally cultivated fields. It's a, it's a pretty impressive system. And in some ways, not to cheapen the system, but is the closest you can get to a conventional system where your job is effectively done at planting. Uh, exactly. Yeah. I mean, that is your, you, you, if this, if you don't have to do any of these rescue operations I just mentioned, you plant the soybeans, and you're not in that field again until you combine those soybeans. So it's, yeah. it's a it's a beautiful system, both uh, visually and production-wise, if if you can get all these elements lined up to make it work. So we've talked about soybeans, and that is, as you said, you know, it's a crop that lends itself well to a system like this. But let's talk about corn maybe we'll end there or maybe a better way to ask the question is why aren't we talking about corn so where where are we at with no-till and uh, organic corn systems that's a great question and we are continuing to work on that system and develop that system for a wider range of um, environments and um, uh, planting and growing conditions it's been a challenge for us in the upper Midwest. Um, so again, you know, I have been grateful for the mentorship and guidance of Jeff Moyer and the Rodale Institute um, as I've developed my research program. And one of the uh, practices that, that they use um, in, in their no-till crop rotation is using a similar strategy with corn where they're doing a fall planted legume, in this case, hairy vetch, and planting that um, again earlier in the, the fall, um, so late August, September. Um, similarly, that starts to grow in the fall, goes dormant in the winter, regrows again in the spring, and they, they can terminate that with a roller crimper. And um, theoretically, in the upper Midwest, we also can terminate that with a roller crimper. The challenge with vetch um, here in the more northern latitudes is that we do not get um, effective termination of the, the vetch. We do not get that vetch to reach the right stage of maturity until about the third week of June. And unlike soybeans, which also tends to lend itself to more flexibility in terms of um, the range of planting dates where you can get a crop for, for us in, in Wisconsin, planting corn in the third week of June is just not a viable option. Um, so it's, it's, it's been a challenge um, to adapt it to uh, 
the 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 vetch rolled system that the the Rodale Institute has gotten to work in Pennsylvania. Now I've seen beautiful photographs of this system in other areas, um, including some work that North Carolina State University has done with Dr. Chris Rebo Corton, and I've seen farmers from Nebraska show me beautiful fields of rolled vetch and corn under irrigated acres. And I think that's another key in this system um, and the adaptation and reduction of risk is that again these photographs are from irrigated systems where water is not limited. Um, you know, corn is is more challenging with respect to um, its, its nitrogen needs and mm-hmm. getting a cover crop and a system where we're able to deliver adequate fertility to um, at the points in crop growth where, where corn is, is um, really needing that nitrogen. Um, and also we talked about just the um, elasticity, I guess, of, of soybean with respect to yields and stand count. I mean, corn, we're really much more dependent on um, getting the target stands to achieve our yield goals. And um, that still remains a system or a challenge within the other world cover crop systems when it comes to corn through you know, optimization of, of planting and then um, ensuring should we get good emergence. So there's just multiple challenges that we're wrestling with, um, again, particularly in our more northern climates where our growing season is is um, short and we really need to optimize that to achieve our yield goals with corn. Right. And I think a tendency is to say, well, if, if the rye system works with soybeans and if you can, you know, roll or crimp that earlier than you would be able to fetch, why not just do corn into rye? Um, and I, I know that the, the year that we tried that, uh, we had almost hundred percent crop kill because of army worms. And so, yes, so can you talk yeah. about why, why the rye system doesn't work? Why can't that? Yeah. Just be yeah. So, I mean, there's a, there's a couple different reasons there. I mean, one is, um, the, the nitrogen issue and one mm-hmm. of the, so there's actually with the soybean systems, there's three modes of action in which the cereal rye suppresses the, the weed seeds. Um, one is a physical barrier, prevents um, sunlight from reaching the soil's surface, um, and then basically starve those emerged um, weeds for sunlight. Um, the second is that it um, has allelopathic properties, so um, that the rye plants um, exude a, a, essentially a chemical that um, inhibits weed seeds from germinating. Mm -hmm. But the third is that it actually starves the weed seeds from nitrogen. Um, so in that, that is, um, a key aspect as well. So I mean that, that rye, it takes up a lot of nitrogen. Um, it, and it, with the soybeans, which are a legume, um, they're nitrogen fixers and, but you can still see the impacts of this until about, um, the latter portion of July. So those soybeans, whenever I go out to the fields, I mean, they're, they're lagging behind the, the soybeans that are in the, the typical cultivated organic system. They always look a little peaked. Um, and then once that nitrogen fixation seems to kick in, the, the soybeans tend to outgrow it. So the fact that we're using a legume and a nitrogen fixer is really essential as well. Um, so the, the fact that that you know, in the rolled rye, the, the corn is going to be starved for nitrogen and we just haven't 
in the, the trials that we've done, be able to overcome that with any supplemental additions of nitrogen. I mean, the other issue goes back to just good sound crop rotation practices is that you always want to um, diversify your crop sequence so that we're following each crop with a different crop family, because that's going to mitigate pests and disease issues. Right. And when we look at corn and rye, we're essentially planting a grass into a grass. Um, so that's going to, um, you know, cause more issues with both uh, pests and diseases, and particularly with armyworm um, that, that tend to have more impact on grasses. They, the moths will fly up from the north, um, especially with the timing of when we roll our crimp. Um, the moths will lay eggs on the, um, the, the, the rye plants, um, and then as those eggs um, hatch, they'll be right where they need to be to to absolutely devastate that corn crop. So, um, you know, just in general, when we're looking at good crop practices, um, we want more crop diversification. So that as much as we can develop these systems where we're using a different crop family, whether it be a, a legume or a broadleaf, the, the better we can be able to mitigate pest and disease issues for the corn. Right. Always a good reminder. Diversity in all things. So as far as organic no-till corn goes, at least in the upper Midwest, it's kind of a stay tuned message. It is. And I, I still feel very, very hopeful. We're trying some, um, you know, not only working, it's been so exciting to see the interest and the partnerships with some just incredible um, machine manufacturers. There's a lot of interest, not only in organic, but regenerative practices in general that are very cover crop intensive and and realizing the value of those systems and the growth of those systems and farmer recognition of their value we're just seeing more resources in general so as we see better equipment to manage both the cover crop and planting of the cash crop um, and there there's also um using these tools to to adapt um, beyond the roller crimper different termination and suppression methods whether it be undercutting or mowing or in row uh, between row rollers um, there's some really exciting innovations on the the horizon that i'm still very hopeful within the next few years we'll, we'll have some viable solutions but still as a stay tuned unfortunately uh, that's exciting stuff. So in addition to all the no-till work that you're doing, you also are now running O-Grain uh, and have mm -hmm. been for many years at this point. And I know that the night before, now the day and night before the annual O-Grain conference, you have a meeting of the minds where it's organic no-till. Um, what's the word you use? A okay. summit maybe? Organic a summit. No An organic no-till summit the, the day and night before O-Grain, which is a really really nice venue for farmers sharing their experiences, you updating on research and really to the last couple that I've been to, it's just a brainstorming session too, where you're really thinking about all of the knobs you can turn and how to make the system work. And these farmer and industry partnerships are so vital and, and one of the many reasons why I love working in organic in the organic community. I, I am so grateful to be able to contribute our resources at the university um, and be able to have the, the the time and the land to be able to take on this risk and try new things and be able to bring in expertise from biological systems engineering and the soil science department and, and really um, do do what we can to bring our minds together. But the minds of the farmers and the, the minds of um, 
the industry are, are so vital to coming up with solutions and creating systems that are, are viable from both a you know, production and profitability standpoint and you know, working with farmers and having the sharing of information of, of what they're seeing on their farms and what they're learning. Um, you know, we only have one shot every year to think through what we're going to do and to try it. Um, and it's, it's scary sometimes for me to think of just how few, how few seasons I have left <laughs> in my research career to figure these things out right. and just the power we have as a community. If we're trying various things on our own farms, um, throughout the upper Midwest and beyond and sharing that information, just how much more quickly we'll be able to come, um, to find solutions that benefit organic farmers and, and the environment. All right. I think that is a good place to leave it. I appreciate you wrapping it up with some poetry. Thank you. Thank you for that. Um, always good to connect, Aaron. I appreciate you taking the time. I'm glad we were finally able to do this. <laughs> yeah, me too. We, we both have pretty busy schedules. The, oh the planets gosh. aligned. Every planet is now in one long line somewhere up in outer space. <laughs> and that's how this was able to happen. Have, <laughs> have a great weekend. Yeah, you as well, Aaron. We'll see you. Bye. You can find Pipeline Foods Podcast on SoundCloud, iTunes, Spotify, our website, or wherever you get your podcasts. Support for this podcast provided by, you guessed it, Pipeline Foods. If you'd like to sponsor this podcast, get in touch. We'd love to share your story with our listeners.